All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in Esther chapters 1 and 2, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Esther 1 and 2. Like JC said, it was a great camp. Um, a lot of kids received Christ as their Lord and Savior. Today we'll be having a baptism out at Mazingo at 1.30, if you can join us for that to support all those who want to be baptized. Um, several of the kids are going to be baptized, and any adults that have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior and have never been baptized, you want to do that, this is a great time. We'll have one more before winter, I think, maybe two. We'll see. Um, but that's the plan for today anyway, so 1.30 after second service. Um, this book of Esther is a, is a, it's a really interesting book. It's, it's only one of two books in the Bible that has a woman's name. And uh, this one never mentions God, never mentions his name once, um, never mentions prayer. Um, it's just very interesting. And, and there's a reason for that, I think. You know, you always look, well, okay. It's never mentioned in the New Testament either. Uh, it's never quoted. It's never re- referenced. Um, it's interesting. And you can, you can think about these things maybe too much. I, I tend to do that sometimes, think things a little too much. But given the situation, Esther, what we've just got done with um, Ezra, Nehemiah, you know, and the whole captivity thing. And we followed the 60,000-plus folks that went back to Israel. This is back in Babylon. This is back where they were in captivity. So this book really represents all those that didn't go back. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost embarrassing to think that only 60,000 decided to go back to their homeland, um, that it wasn't that important to them, that they were that comfortable in Babylon. And so that's an assumption I make. I want to be careful, but that's an assumption that a lot of these people grew up in Babylon, and this is normal, uh, just like we grew up here um, I bet if you talk to some immigrants that have come from other places in our lifetime, that is, or grandparents that came before we were born, they would explain to you the blessings of what it's like to be here versus where they came from and why they came and so on. These folks may not have that reference. This is great. This is all I've ever known. I've grown up in this culture. Um, Maybe nationalism or patriotism wasn't taught. In their homes, and so it was just normal for them to stay. Well-established business, they become accustomed to it. Well, that might explain why God's never mentioned in the book of Esther back in Babylon. He's not on the forefront of their minds. He's working for them without them knowing it, and that's really what this book is about. God's plan for them without them knowing that he has a plan in action. Maybe the reason why prayer isn't mentioned, because they're not. It isn't an issue for them. Maybe it's in name only. Maybe it's a remembrance or something way in the back. Maybe it's a, um, a cultural thing. We even have that in our country. Well, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians, because their grandparents are Christians, and we're just kind of Christians. Are you born again? Excuse me? What's that? I grew up that way. That's how I got saved. Was someone asked, they said, are you a Christian? I said, well, yeah. <laughs> and they said, were you born again? When were you born again? What, what are you talking about? What is born again? You must be born again. He showed me the scripture. You must be born again. Or you're not, you're not going to heaven unless you're born again. Did I miss something? I did. <laughs> I missed a big step from being Christianized, being saved. God isn't mentioned because he's not in the forefront of their minds. Prayer isn't mentioned because that is not happening. And yet, just like J.C. prayed, although there's faithlessness here on people's part, there's faithfulness on God's part. There is a cloud, a storm brewing that the people, the Jewish people in Israel or in, in Babylon have no idea what's coming their way. And God, foreseeing that storm, foreseeing that cloud, foreseeing that trouble, begins to put a redeemer in place before the actual redeemer is needed. So this is very much a type of Christ in this situation. 
where Christ was slain before the foundations of the world, that the plan was in motion before we were even created. God knew what he was going to have to do to redeem mankind, even though not even the sin had taken place yet. But the redemption that was going to come that we didn't even know we needed, God said, I'm going to prepare that for you because there's no way for you to reconcile after you do what you're about to go do. You cannot reach me once you do what you're about to go do. And so we see God here almost, I think, five years prior to the threat actually exposing itself. He begins to do a work. He begins to move things. And so chapter one is a very interesting one. It's hard for me as a teacher not to teach chapter one and to draw from it. Say, you got to learn. You got to see that chapter. Well, we're in Babylon. Nobody's doing anything right in Babylon. Nobody loves God. Nobody knows about God. Nobody cares about God. I mean, a few do. Mordecai's back there. Esther's back there. And we're going to read about these guys. But for the most part, when we read about what's about to happen in chapter one, this is, these are useful idiots in Babylon. And people walking in the flesh, oblivious to God, getting drunk, doing their thing, whatever, can become useful idiots. They can be used. God can bring about his plan and his purposes through their foolishness, through their sin even at times. I mean, even Judas, he was used by God. We needed, Jesus needed to die on a cross. Jesus needed to be accused. He needed to be falsely accused. He needed to be turned over. He he needed some people to betray him. He needed to get handed over to the Roman government so that he could be killed for the remission of our sins. He needed to be a just man, wrongly accused, put on the cross, and then to rise from the dead because he was a righteous man. That all had to happen. And even, even Matthew said that as we went through that on Wednesday. The Son of Man must be betrayed, but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. And so Judas is not let off the hook just because he was a useful idiot. And neither are these people. But keep that in mind. God is saying, okay, okay, I see. I see you down there having a party. I'll work. I'll, I'll use that. I can use your foolishness to put my person into place. That's exactly what he does. In verse 1, now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. They have to clarify that because there's a lot of these guys. So he had 20, 127, that's seven more than most. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Mede, or Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom, and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. That's a, that's a long feast. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on the silver rods and marble pillars and the Couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other. In other words, they weren't cast from a form or from a mold. They were crafted with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. You didn't have to if you didn't want to. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. It's interesting he documents all that. He writes all that down. Now, first of all, all the splendor and the riches and everything is to give us some background as to why this is all happening and the beauty and the size and the scope. From man's perspective, which is all we have most of the time as we look around and say, man. I remember when I worked up in Omaha, I worked for Pella Windows for a while. I was a service tech, and I'd go in and do all the things. And sometimes I'd come in during a, a construction process, not like a, a remodel, so it was like a, a new, new construction. And some of the neighborhoods I went into, I mean, we talk about, I sell some houses around here that are pretty big and, and pretty nice, you know, neighborhoods of them. Like a street 
full of million dollar homes. I mean, a neighborhood full of a bunch of $120 million homes. Like, are you kidding me? Who lives here? Where do you work? You know, what do you people do for a living? They can't all be at Union Pacific or you can't all be at ConAgra. Where do you people, what do you do? Anyway. It, it's like that. You walk in, you're like, you, you walk into the foyer, you're like, yeah, my house would fit here in the foyer right here, you know? <laughs> foyer. Depends on where you're from. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't have one, so I don't need to know how to pronounce it. You walk into this place, it's like, man. And that's the idea behind this, is to give us that man's awe. You know, gee whiz, this is like seven-car garage, and it's full. Are you kidding me, you know? I used to uh, work for Willie Thiessen. He does frozen foods up there, and he had a house in the middle of Regency. Regency is like this, eh, whatever, one of those neighborhoods, you know. And he took up, he bought from the city of Omaha half of the park, the city park of Regency, and oh, man, they were mad, so that he could put his helicopter pad right there. And I walk into this place, and I look out in his garage, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, there's a Ferrari. There's a, huh? You need me to te- keep these? I keep them running for you. You know, just keep that lubed up. I was in awe. I just couldn't believe this. Photos on the wall with the cast of Cats from Broadway, and I'm like, I don't, I don't even get this, you know. And nobody ever lived there. They were never there, ever, ever, ever. They were never home, you know. Gee whiz. And that's, man, that's just what we do. It's like, gee, that's a lot of money, you know. That's all this is. And God's about to step in and say, it ain't nothing to me. This is nothing. This is nothing. You're in awe of the marble and the black marble and all the fine linen and all the great stuff. This is nothing. Watch me. Watch me move in the midst of all of this, what we think is wisdom, what we think is success, what we think is it all comes to nothing. I use these people... And maybe useful idiots is a strong term, but I can't help it. Because they're going to get drunk. He's going to get drunk. and He's going to do something stupid, which it doesn't matter how much money you have. Nothing is ever improved by alcohol. Ever, ever, ever. It's never improved. That's what, that's, that, we even use that in our culture. When we hear about something stupid happen, and we always make the joke, and I'm sure alcohol wasn't involved, Right? Because we know, oh, they jumped off the seven-story balcony into the pool. I'm sure alcohol wasn't involved. Nobody thinks that's a good idea because all judgment goes out the window. All spiritual godliness goes out the window. All of your inhibitions, all of your checks and balances are slowly but surely eroded away. You become under the influence of this and you begin to do dumb things. Queen Vashti. Verse 9, also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. I just smile because it's so dumb. It's so obvious Hey, I mean, it's hard for me not to do the, you know, the voice. Go get my wife. She's hot, you know. Get her, bring her in here. You guys got to see her. Get her crown on her. Get her crown. The little crown, you know. You can just see him doing that. And she's over there doing her thing. And she gets this, all these seven eunuchs walk in. Hey, king wants to see, wants to bring you in, wants to show you off to his buddies. Yeah, no. That's not going to happen. And that was a bold move for her. Now, maybe she'd been in place long enough to know, or maybe she'd had enough. Because honestly, the fact that she's holding a party in her own place over there really doesn't show that she has, like, she's not, like, second in command. None of the queens were back then. None of the women had rights. None of the women were used. Or, well, they were used. That's the wrong way to put it. None of the women were appreciated. None of them. 
And so when he asked for this, she's had enough, is my opinion. No, I'm not going. I'm not doing it. Well, he gets mad. And he's going to do the dumbest thing he can ever do. The, the one beauty that he wanted to show off, the, the trophy wife, the thing that he loved, uh, he's going to banish from himself under the influence. Now, it's hard to teach this because you can't. This is just dumb. And we do those things. When we're under the influence of other things other than God, other than the Holy Spirit, that's why Paul says, if you're going to be drunk, be drunk with the Holy Spirit. Be moved by him. Be under his influence. Let him move you into doing crazy stuff because it'll be right and it'll work and it'll be amazing when he moves you. When you're moved by your flesh under the influence of alcohol, it's always bad. Always. It always hurts people and yourself. And here's a perfect example of that. So he's going to get mad. Now, he needs to be careful. You see, um, these guys in this culture, in this, the Medes and the Persians and all these guys, when, when they're made king, it's a, it's a big deal, first of all, not just because they get to drive any chariot they want kind of thing, but because whatever they say becomes law, and whatever they say becomes law and cannot be reversed by them even. It becomes law. And even they fall under that authority, under that law, and it cannot be taken back. In Proverbs 31, we know Proverbs 31, but there's some good stuff for us too there, other than the Proverbs 31 wife, you know, kind of thing. We always use that. Well, here's some things for us, guys. Proverbs 31, the word of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him, so he has taken it to heart and he is writing this. What, my son? And what son of my womb, and what son of my vows, do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings? And here's what destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. We're about to see that happen right here. He's angry, he's drunk. She refused. He's going to do something stupid. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew the law and justice, those closest to him being um, Karshina, uh, Shethar, Adamatha, Tarshish, Mirez, Marcina, and Memekin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus um, brought to her by the eunuchs. She didn't listen to the eunuchs' command that the king had given them. And Memukin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti, see, these friends, these advisors, well, first of all, they like their position. They don't want to lose it. But they also see opportunities when they see opportunities. That's just how it is in politics, unfortunately. Well, they see an opportunity here. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report. King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. That's the accusation. This is the crime. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let the royal decree go out with him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before the king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she, when the king's decree, which he, will make his pro, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. I don't care what happened to you, this guy says, but it's going to happen to all of us because you've just set an example. She set a standard. Our wives are going to hear about it. They're going to start mouthing off to us too. You need to nip this in the bud right now. You tell them all what's going to happen to her, and that'll stop this cancer from spreading. 
If that doesn't remind me of, you will speak no more in the name of Jesus anymore. I don't want you to talk about Jesus anymore. You know, you disciples. No more Christ. Uh, stop it. And the reply pleased the king and the princess. And the king did according to the word of Memucan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Done. That'll show him. You dope. Chapter 2. After these things. (laughs) After what things? After he sobered up. When the wrath of the king Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti. He liked this girl. He didn't just think she was pretty. He loved her. He cared for her. He's going to show that when he's, when he's talking to Esther here in a minute. Spoiler alert, but we wouldn't be reading the story if we didn't know it was going to happen, right? He loved this girl. And he made a stupid proclamation, I'm never going to see her again, so let it be written, so let it be done. What? Ha ha, showed her. And now you never get to see the love of your life, the one you're so proud of, because she didn't want to be embarrassed in front of your friends, because she didn't want to be paraded like some fool, because she didn't want to be treated less than. Useful idiot. Now he's in the world, he doesn't know any better. This is what you do. This is a story that's been told probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of times throughout human history where men have been given an absolutely beautiful person to spend the rest of their lives with because they do something stupid, because they're under the influence, because of whatever reason. They do not appreciate what they have. They do not understand there's a human being, another human being, with a soul, a daughter of God, and they begin to treat her less than who God created her to be. And they lose her. She may be a weaker vessel in the Old Testament, but that's because God wants us to care for her just like he cares for his bride. He treats us with such great respect. He washes our feet. He cleanses us. He dies on the cross for our sins. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. That's what it means to be like Christ to your bride. And when we as men don't do that for our spouses, for the one that God brought alongside of us, we fail. We just flat out fail. This guy just flat out failed, and he is now feeling it. Now, that's him, and that's Babylon, and that's the world, and that's what alcohol does to families. That's a fact. Now, here's what God's going to do with it. He remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what he decreed against her. And then the king's servants who attended to him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of um, Haggai, it's not Haggai like the prophet, but Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who ple- the young woman, excuse me, who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In other words, he's down, he's depressed, he doesn't know what to do, and the guys thought, well, just bring her a new girl. Fine. I think we got to get off this train as far as watching what this guy's going to do because. God's going to just use it now. It's water under the bridge. He's made a buffoon of himself. He's made a tremendous mistake. But God is going to capitalize upon his foolish, fleshy mistake. He's going to put in his Redeemer now. He's going to put in his Redeemer. And he actually learns from this moment. He does. Later on, spoiler alert, Esther's going to try to just show up in his presence without being allowed or asked He's going to walk into the room, which is a capital offense. You can be put to death, not just put back into the harem kind of thing like he did with Vashti, but you can be put to death for that, and he doesn't. Now, 
I guess we can call that growth. I don't know. But the idea is he's learned that, you know what? And that's, that shows his heart for her, Esther. Um, he learns from this moment. So I think we have to leave his, his story right now. We need to move on to what God's about to do here. These are all dumb ideas. These are all things that shouldn't, but God's going to use them. He's going to bring Esther into the kingdom right now. He's going to put a Jewess into the position of power to save the people. So this thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish, now that's italicized because we don't know, but we assume because if it's not Kish that got brought back into captivity and Mordecai grew up in it, that would make Mordecai 120 years old, which isn't really, doesn't jive, right? So they put Kish in there to clarify this next statement. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, um, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, that's her name. Hadassah um, is, is the Jewish name, and Esther, um, anyway, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So quite an age difference, um, but still felt the responsibility to take care of her. And so it was. When the king's command and decree were heard, and many young women were gathered at, the Sh- at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now, the young woman pleased him. and She obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Now, she has a gentle, quiet spirit. She's a little on the tibbet side, probably. I mean, who wouldn't be in this situation? This is just weird all the way around. None of this is right. I mean, just to be clear, I think we all know that, right? You don't have a house full of women over there, first of all. You don't have a custodian over them. That's wrong, too. I mean, I should have to say this, but sometimes people write, the Bible's just terrible. Look what it says here. The Bible says that women are, have custodians. No, this is just documenting the foolishness of man. This doesn't mean we follow it. He's just writing down Babylon was dumb, and they had women over there, and these guys had too many wives, and these poor women were treated horribly. That's what we gather from all this information. We don't say, okay, so many wives. That's a good, you know. Who do I hire to be the custodian over my harem? That's ridiculous. This is ridiculous. But God's going to use it. Instead of overthrowing Babylon, and throw, overthrowing the Medes and the Persians and redoing everything because the people do what they do, he's just going to, he's going to use it. He's going to use their system. I say all that because... Sometimes you'll find yourself in a position where I'm in the system. God doesn't always use us in godly systems, is what I'm saying. To hear this, Esther's listening to Mordecai. There isn't an option. You had to go to the palace. Mordecai isn't hoping for, oh boy, I hope I can cash in on this by uh, human trafficking his cousin here. That's not what is happening here. He knows the best thing for you to do, okay, honey, is to be just that godly woman that you are. You just stay true to God. You keep your eyes on the Lord. You go through this trial. You go through this valley of darkness. You go through this valley of death. I know how horrible this is. Nobody's excited about tryouts for queendom. And he's given her the best advice he can give her. And he also is toughening her up a little bit. We're going to be used by God in this lifetime. And later on, he's going to say, for such a time as this, this is how God's going to use you. It's not how I thought this was going to go down. I mean, I thought I'd married a good Jewish boy. We'd have a good Jewish family. I have some good Jewish kids. We'd raise them to be good Jewish kids. We'd all go back to, you know, Israel together or whatever. You know the plan. She didn't think this is going to, how it's going to go down. 
So he says, I want you to, I want you to be who you're supposed to be. Now, it pleased this custodian. Already he's got his eye on her saying, okay, yeah, wow, this woman's amazing. She's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. She stands out way, head and shoulders above everybody else. This is amazing. That's good and bad. Maybe you kind of wanted to sneak in and not be noticed. That gentle, quiet spirit, that humility, that beauty, obviously. She's an attractive woman. Has set her apart. And the custodian notices it, and he starts putting them in. Now, this custodian, he's getting ministered to. You'll see this later on. Now, the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave her beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. In other words, all these gals are getting their preparations, kind of soften them up. They've been in the field a little too long, a little too many calluses, a little too brown as skin. They didn't like that back then. That just showed that you were impoverished and that you're outside working when you should be you know, eating grapes, laying on a couch kind of thing, becoming pasty white and, and so on. Um, and so they liked that. And so that's what's happening here. They're putting oil on their skin. It's like pampering so they can get all softened up and ready. And it takes a year to do this. It takes a year for them to get ready for this. She's getting extra treatments is the idea. The seven choice maidservants were provided for her. So now she has a little entourage with her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family. She didn't tell anybody she was a Jewess. For Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what is happening to her. I hope every father in here can feel this. Can you imagine? You're helpless. There's nothing you can do. They've taken her. If I hold her back, they'll find her, they'll kill her, they'll kill me. She goes in, and you're just standing through the gate, just thinking, what in the world is happening to my, my cousin? I mean, he considers her a daughter. What is happening to her? Don't tell them you're a Jewess. He knows. We've never been popular on earth. As soon as they find out who we are, we have instant enemies. I say that and pause for effect, maybe because it's the same today. Tiny, tiny little sliver of land. Look at a globe. Get a globe. Probably don't have globes anymore, do we? Go to Google Earth. Sorry. Find Israel and look how tiny it is. And all the world hates it, wants it to die. All the Arab countries around it in their constitutions, in their Bill of Rights, in their whatever government documentation they have that they live off of says we must annihilate the Jew. Are you kidding me? Why? They stole land. No, first of all, they didn't, but wow. Egypt, just give them a little. Why don't you give the Palestinians some land? How about you over here, Jordan? Just give them a little bit. Well, no. They just hate Jewish people. And that anti-Semitism is the same anti-Semitism that was around when Jesus came the first time and has been throughout centuries. Satan hates the line of the Messiah. He hates everything that has to do with it. From the, from the, I mean, he, Abel was the first one murdered. Satan was already trying to stop the Messiah from coming by killing Abel and has been trying to wipe out the Jewish people throughout all of human history and is still doing it to this day. If you ever find your place or in, in a position where you have those feelings towards Jewish people, I want you to understand where that comes from. It comes from Satan himself. You're under the power of Satan. You're listening to Satan, and you feel that way because Satan is influencing you. And you need to repent of that anti-Semitism. I know they need Jesus. I know they need to accept their Messiah. I know that. I know they're lost. There are some completed Jews that have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Most have not. In fact, most are atheists when you go over there. That's the weirdest thing. You go over to Israel, you expect this really holy, holy site. No. It's tourism. Most of the Jewish people over there are atheists. They don't even go. It's just the strangest thing. But it's the exact opposite of what you think. This anti-Semitism, Mordecai knows about it. Do not tell them who you are. Each young woman's turn, cringe, came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. 
For thus were the days of their preparations apportioned. Six months of oil, of myrrh. Six months of perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king. And she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. These are really tryouts. Now, there are several of these women that would love to be the queen. They would be great. And so they're allowed to bring whatever props they want, you know, you know, fan dances or whatever it is that they did. I got my, my imagination went wild here, you know. I'll, I'll stop and spare you what I was thinking. But they bring all this stuff, whatever they want to do, whatever you think can make you stand out like everybody else. So you can see these, you know, peacock feathers. Look at me, king, you know, or whatever. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of uh, Shazgag, Shagaz, whatever the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. So we've switched, haven't we? From here on out, when they call them young virgins, it really means young woman, because now they're now in the concubine section. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name, and yes, it's as bad as you think it is. Uh... In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 12 through 14, the nation of Israel is rising up against God's theocracy that he set up for the nation. And they said, we want a king like everybody else. This is everybody else. And so Samuel the prophet tells them in chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, what to expect from this new king. Now he was mournful over it, sorrowful over it, didn't want them to ask this of God. And God says, no, we're going to let him have the king. Just tell him what it's going to be like. And this is what it's going to be like. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some, in other words, some of your daughters and your sons to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He's going to make your sons and daughters servants of his. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. The idea behind that scripture, and I think we need to understand this from a spiritual aspect, is you are going to serve somebody. You either serve the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, or you are going to serve man. And man takes a much larger chunk and is not looking out for your best interest is the idea behind this, is always looking out for themselves and what they can gain or squeeze out of you. God, on the other hand, says, I just want you once in a while to remember me, to have feasts for me, with me, eat with me, join me, worship. It's your best life ever. Because he knows what's going to happen if you don't. And it's this. And here we see it. When man's in charge, when man governs himself, it's a horrible thing. And this is what it looks like. So many people are damaged because of this. So many wounds, so many hurts. And it's so normal. We read it and we're just appalled by the idea of a house full of women and concubines and all these things. Yeah, it's Wednesday there, you know. This is just Wednesday in Babylon. No big deal. And the world is so numb to how wrong it is. They've accepted it. They've taken it to heart. They walk in it day in, day out and say, this is just life. This is just life. And, and the Holy Spirit is screaming to everybody in this world, that is not it. That is not life. That is not what I intended for you. This is not how you have to feel. You don't have to go through these things. These aren't, this isn't my plan for you. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You don't even realize you're carrying the backpack you're carrying. When you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you ask for forgiveness of your sins, you take off that backpack you've been carrying around for so long, that burden is lifted, and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so light. My heart, 
There's mercy. There's forgiveness. I don't have to feel this way about myself. I don't have to feel that way about other people. I can forgive people. I don't have to be bitter and seek vengeance. I can let it go. I can walk with my God like he walked with us. I can follow his. It's just amazing. This is horrible, all of it. But God is going to use it. Four years later, verse 16, four years from the beginning of of chapter one anyway. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is in the month of uh, Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and he did. He did. Not just, oh, she's pretty. No, he loved her. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight. Kings like this don't give grace. When you get unmerited favor like that, this is because there's affection. There's true. He's a softer, softer man right now. In favor in his sight. More than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. He's doing everything he should have done for Vashti now to Esther. You appreciate your wife? Man, throw her a party. Don't parade her. Don't treat her like cattle. Make it Queen Esther Day, you know? Make a holiday out of it. Everybody, this is Esther Day, you know? Or fill in your wife's name. And they do. When versions were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now we're moving on in the story. She's in position. She's in her place now where God needs her. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. That obedience is going to help. It's going to come in handy. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and um, Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. I don't know what happened. I mean, being a eunuch alone would probably be enough to put anybody over the edge, but there they are. We're going to, it's a conspiracy. Let's take them out. Assassination. So the matter became known to Mordecai. He's inside the king's gate. He hears these guys talking about it. He tells Esther. <coughs> and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. That's where we're going to stop today, but I want to, before you close your Bibles and, and maybe get off, we get off onto communion now, which is our next um, thing that we're going to do this morning. Um, why did Mordecai care? Why does he care if this king lives? This king just grabbed his cousin. He's been doing things, you know, who knows what? I mean, there's no, he knows that I don't know what's going to happen to her. I don't know who's going to be installed as king. I don't know. I don't know if she gets her head taken off because once the king's dead, maybe the queen's next, and then they find a whole new group. He doesn't know. He knows the right thing to do. And this is like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or Daniel, any of these guys in Babylon. Love the Lord their God. They never compromised, but they served. It's the weirdest thing. They served these carnal, fleshy people. They served. They served. And it's just astounding to me. You know, she's just serving. This is my husband now. They're going to try to kill you, honey. Mordecai, my cousin, told me so. He heard him over time. Really? Now, they say that because it was very formal, and it probably wasn't honey, you know, by the way kind of thing. It was very formal. They would do this in the court, and they had a guy over here in the corner that we don't see in the story, and he's always writing stuff down. Everything that's ever said is written down. He's a stenographer, basically, old-fashioned stenographer. I don't know if he's using a chisel. I probably had ink back then. I'm, I'm just kidding. But no typing, for sure. So this stenographer, right stenographer, sorry. I'm a little tired from camp, too, all right? Give me a break. Um, <laughs> two bangs later, you're, you got this. This is what you get. Camp and two caffeine drinks. Here we go. Um, he writes this down because that's going to become very important later on in the story. Because he doesn't remember what happened here. He doesn't remember who told him or how it all went down. All he knows is, and you can understand, you're about to be assassinated. That's the only word he heard, you know. 
stop it, figure it out, and they did, and he's just very grateful he's alive kind of thing. Later on, he's going to need to know this name, um, and we'll, we'll get to there when we get to there. The deliverer, and this is what I want to leave you with, the deliverer is in place. There is no threat yet. It hasn't been exposed, but the deliverer is in place now. God is moving despite the faithlessness, despite the lack of prayer, despite everything else, where everybody else is in their mind and in their heart, spiritually speaking, God has moved the deliverer into place because he loves them. I hope you know that this morning, that God loves you. And sometimes may, you may feel like you're in the middle of a story similar to this. It, it meant me this crazy. But you feel like I'm, a, I'm, I'm like being moved through this system and I don't even know what to do about it. Be encouraged. If you're following hard after God, if you're paying attention to him, be in prayer, focused on him. God moves deliverers into place. He's working on other sides all the time, not just in me. How are they going to hear the gospel? They'll hear it. I want you to share it if you get the opportunity, but they're going to hear it from somebody else. God is always moving that way, always. He's always working, and I'm thankful for that. And I hope we know that from this, these first two chapters anyway. It gets better. A lot of irony, a lot of twists and turns. This is one of the greatest. But they actually, in the Jew, I know we're going to do communion eventually. Um, they have a they have a holiday called Purim, which I've toyed with doing here a little bit. They sit down and they have a feast together. The 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 synagogue, you know, the group, whatever, whoever it is, and they all dress up in costume. And they have noisemakers. I mean, they're super loud. And they read through the book of Esther. And every time Haman's name comes up, everybody stands up and makes a bunch of noise because he's the enemy of Israel kind of thing. I thought, well, like we could get into that. That could also get a little weird too. So I'm not going on the fence with that. You, <laughs> who knows? So communion. God has graciously given us a redeemer. He's put a redeemer in place for us. Before we ever knew him, before you ever knew you needed a redeemer, God, 2,000 plus years ago, sent his son Jesus, thank you, Mick, to die on the cross for my sins and for your sins. Before I was even born, he had a plan in place to make sure that I would live with him forever. And I'm so thankful for that. And that's what this is. This communion time is a commemoration of that time that we remembered for the first time in our lives or realized for the first time in our lives that we needed this Redeemer that he put in place, appreciated it. Everybody's watching this Esther story. All the people are watching this Esther go up. They don't know who she is. They don't remember. Some of them might. Mordecai knows for sure. But they're really going to understand in a little bit here, in a few chapters, how precious she really was to them. And I hope we know that about our Jesus, about our Redeemer, our Savior, that without him, death was waiting for me. Without him, hell was waiting for me and you. But because he, being perfect, put himself in a position to take that death waiting for me and put it upon himself, as he took my sin and put it on the cross, that he paid the penalty for it, he then turns and also imputes his righteousness to us. The very thing that I don't have to get into heaven, I do not have perfection Christ is imputed to me. His righteousness is given to me. That is the robe we wear, the marriage garment that is put on when we go to heaven, the righteousness of Christ. We enter in, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And we're all scratching our heads, most of us. What? Well done, good and faithful servant. All right. I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to wonder. I'm just walking in. I'm so thankful for what he's done. And this is what we do. Jesus says, my body's going to be broken for you. My blood's going to be shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do this in remembrance of me. I'll always remember this. I hope we always remember this. It doesn't have to be once a month at Calvary. Do this at home too. Do this whenever you want. You can have these moments with the Lord where you remember what his broken body's done for you, what his shed blood has done for you. I encourage you to do that makes it far more personal, you know, and less of a ritual when you begin to do these things on your own. Um, but we also need to do it together because he says, whenever you come together, do these things, and, and we want to do that too. Um, but do it on your own also. And so this morning, Lord, we thank you for this bread. 
that you've given us this to remind us of the redemption that we have in you, of the forgiveness that we have in you, of our Savior, and from what you saved us from. That it would have been our broken body, that it would have been our shed blood, but instead you did that. And we're thankful for that this morning. Lord, we confess our sin to you. We confess it. We acknowledge it. It is what it is. It's sin. We hate it. You hate it. We're sorry. Please forgive us for our sins, God. Please help us to walk in the newness of, of, of your son, Jesus Christ. Give us a new heart. Give us a new mind. Help us to walk with you, to be obedient to you. In good times and in bad times, help us to be obedient to you. Help us not to be obedient only when it's going right. Help us to be especially obedient when it's going wrong in this world. This world's going to do what it does. It's fleshy, doesn't know you, and we're in it. But we need to walk with you in this valley, and we trust you. So help us to keep our spiritual eyes wide open to everything going on around us, especially now. As things are heating up, it's looking a whole lot like the days of Lot and a whole lot like the days of Noah. It's looking a whole lot like the first time you came. So we know that your return is imminent. You may be here very soon. So help us to keep our eyes wide open and ready to minister to anybody that needs it, to share this that we have in you with them, that they might know the peace, the assurance of salvation, the knowing that what you did on the cross is sufficient for us to get to heaven. Help us to know that and to share that with people. Because they need hope. They have no hope. Help us to be light and salt, Lord. Very salty, very bright. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Visiting, we crack our glasses. If you want to, you don't have to. But just we do it not because it's, it is kind of a tradition. We don't have to do it, um, but it shows that we're cracked vessels. But we've been restored and healed by Jesus Christ, and we carry with us Him wherever we go. And this is just a reminder that it's because of what Christ did, not because of why did what I did. Um, and yet we're still His vessels, and we carry Him wherever we go, cracked and bruised as we are, damaged and faulty as we are. God still uses us. So one, two, three. Have a good rest of the day, guys.